So today's message, like I I said a few moments ago, I'm going to pause in our Revelation series. I hope that you have been encouraged as we've been in that series together up to this point. I have been. Uh, I've enjoyed digging into the book of Revelation, and I've enjoyed bringing those messages. And uh, I'm going to enjoy jumping back in it next week, Lord willing, when we do. And I was all ready to go uh, at the beginning of last week with uh, the next part of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, uh, and I'm really excited to go back into that and, and next week to dig into that with you. But uh, as I was going along, I mean, God just unmistakably led me away from that and very laser-focused to Second Kings, or Second Chronicles, rather, and, and Second Kings is where the, the passage that we're going to be looking at is also echoed, but uh, to Second Chronicles, and specifically to the person that a lot of you know fairly well from your time in the Word of God and probably have studied and heard messages about, King Josiah. King Josiah. That's where my focus went. And specifically, focusing on the spiritual reforms that Josiah brought about, that he was instrumental in, the God used to bring about unparalleled revival in the people of Judah through the land of Israel. And so my heart and my mind was just, it was just drawn uh, to him and, and to what he did and why it was so needed and what God was able to do with that. And the more I thought of it, the more I contemplated that, the more I really believed that that's exactly what God would have us focus on. And the more I acknowledged that we are in need here at this local church of the exact same thing that the people of Judah were in need of, and that is repentance and revival. Repentance and revival. Last week, uh, we ended the focus on the churches, the seven churches in Revelation, we ended with Laodicea, and Laodicea is the lukewarm church. So we talked a lot about that and what that meant for them to be lukewarm and why they were lukewarm. And I have to be just real with you, this church has a lot of the symptoms of the lukewarm church that Laodicea had, that Laodicea was. This church also has a lot of the symptoms from the church at Sardis, which Ian spoke about a few weeks ago. You think you're alive, but you're what? What church? What did Jesus say to Sardis? But you're dead. Uh, I'm I'm not trying to suggest that Every aspect of our local church here and every part of what we do is dead. Please don't misunderstand me. That's not what I'm saying. Nor am I saying that every aspect of what we do and what we are is entirely lukewarm. I do think, however, that there are many aspects of our local church which I love and I trust you do as well. I mean, you're here. I acknowledge that, and I'm encouraged so much to see you here. But 
I would hope that you would be spiritually sensitive enough and honest enough to say, yeah, yeah, I would agree with that, that there are elements of lukewarmness in this church. And that's going to be true of pretty much every church. Maybe not completely, you know, maybe not all, but, but it's definitely going to be prevalent in our current age, specifically in the Western church. Unfortunately, the reality is we have become, I mean, the, the church in general in the West and in this, in this nation, we have become so complacent and so apathetic to so much that being lukewarm is really symptomatic of most churches in this nation and in this time. You may not agree with that, but I really do believe it. And what Jesus said in wrapping up his letter to Laodicea, I think is just completely and constantly applicable to us and what we need to hear and what we need to heed and apply. Last week, we, as we ended up in Revelation 3, specifically verse 19, Jesus said this, "...as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline." We talked about that, that if, if, a, if a Christian and if a church body doesn't ever feel or receive the rebuke and the discipline of the Lord Jesus, though it's hard and uncomfortable to receive, and though it's, it's not desirable to hear, if a Christian never experiences that, if a church never experiences that, that is a red flag and a siren should be going off because the author of Hebrews says, if you don't ever receive discipline from the Lord, then that shows you're not really His. You don't really belong to Him. Because God, like a father, disciplines and corrects everyone He loves that are His. So Jesus, as He finished this scathing rebuke to the church of Laodicea, He said, as many as I love, I rebuke and I discipline. It's like when you have small kids. You've probably said a variation of something that I always heard frequently growing up which is, son, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And if I didn't, I was spanked, church. I mean, you know, I was spanked. Who, who here was spanked as a child? And we all survived. Imagine that. But, I mean, as I was spanked, when I frequently experienced, by the way, um, deserved, frequently deserved, that was followed up with, but if I, if I didn't love you, then I, I wouldn't do this. It be, because I love you, I'm, I'm doing this. It hurts me, it pains me to discipline you this way, but I love you too much to not discipline you. And that's really what Jesus was saying at the end of this letter. As many as I love, I rebuke and, I, and discipline. And so the connection to that, the result of that discipline should be this. So be zealous... Be, be passionate, be determined, be intentional, be active, and repent. Repent. Change your mind. Change your heart. Change your path. Change your direction. 
repent. Psalm 51, verse 17, the psalmist there says, The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. So a broken spirit, a broken heart, as opposed to a, an arrogant or a prideful heart and a prideful spirit, that's what God calls all of us to. Every believer. He calls every single believer in every age to pursue brokenness. And that may sound a little odd, and that may go against our natural thinking. Indeed, it does. It's counterintuitive. It's certainly countercultural to be broken and to pursue brokenness. But it's because of the fact that God takes a broken spirit and raises it up. It's because God takes brokenness and restores and heals and puts it back together. That's why He wants us to pursue that. We can't grow and we can't be conformed to the image of Christ unless we are broken up in self-life. That's what's needed. The chipping away of our arrogance and our pride and our sinfulness and all that keeps us from being like Christ. It needs to be broken away continually as we go forward in this life and in our life with Christ. That's progressive sanctification, becoming less like us and more like Jesus. And to do that, for that to happen, brokenness is required. Repentance is required constantly, perpetually. And this is absolutely right. It's, it's that that kind of sacrifice, the sacrifice of self and the self-life that God desires. And it's a broken and repentant heart that, that God doesn't reject. Rather, He embraces it. He accepts it. He uses that. And that's what we're called to. See, here's the thing we need to understand. Conviction is meant to move us to action. Conviction by God, I'm talking about godly conviction, is meant to move us to action. It's meant to make us do something differently. Guilt does the opposite. Guilt doesn't try to get us to move forward and, and to do anything better and to grow and, and to become more. Guilt, which the enemy, Satan, uses, that just is meant to be a weight on us that never never gets off of us, that just keeps weighing us down, keeps us stuck in the same situation. And if it does anything, it's meant to drive us away from God rather than toward Him. But conviction, godly conviction, it's meant to move us to action to make us move more toward God and to become more like Jesus, to go deeper in our relationship with Him, to go deeper in our walk with Him, Godly conviction, it's meant to bring about positive change and to move us in the right direction. And one of the best examples in all of Scripture is that of King Josiah. And 2 Chronicles 34 is where uh, we're going to be this morning as we look at King Josiah. Um, he, it, this, it's also found in 2 Kings, his story. Uh, but Second Chronicles 34 is where, where I want us to focus. And as we do that, 
Uh, I want to refresh your memory, or, or maybe you haven't really heard or known this before. Uh, King Josiah's lineage was pretty messed up. His father, Ammon, had a very, very short reign because he was assassinated. Uh, but just in a little bit of time he was on the throne, uh, Scripture says what was so prevalent in First and Second Kings and, and Chronicles uh, about the, the kings of the split kingdoms. It was a frequent pattern, more in Israel than it was in Judah, but Judah had it too. Uh, and that is that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Ammon was particularly evil. I mean, his, his wickedness was especially noted. Ammon's father was King Manasseh. And a couple years ago, we did a series here. I did a series called The Comeback and talked about King Manasseh and just how unbelievably wicked he was. Um, His claim to fame through most of his life and most of his reign that he did more evil than any other king ever did before him or after, and he did more wickedness than all the nations that the Lord dispossessed before Israel. So all the wicked, awful people, the Amalekites and Amorites and Canaanites and all those ites, you know, that God drove out ahead of Israel because of their wickedness, because of their pagan worship and idolatry and lifestyle, Manasseh surpassed them. And Manasseh turned Israel even farther away from God. It was a horrible, horrible experience. But the good news and the comeback for Manasseh was that at the end of his reign, at the end of his life, he did turn to the Lord and he, he did a complete 180, brought about amazing reforms, got rid of, of his own idolatry, brought Israel, the people of Israel, Judah specifically, back to God. I mean, it was great, but then that didn't, that didn't last. His son Ammon followed his footsteps before the repentance and before the reform, and that was King Josiah's background. That's who he came from, Manasseh and Ammon. And then we we read this, as Josiah comes on the scene, 2 Chronicles 34, starting in verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Eight years old. Think of you when you were eight. Think of your eight-year-old child. I mean, is there any... Any version of reality where that comes out like a good thing? Where that ends up well? Nope. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Verse 2, He did what was right in the Lord's sight, and walked in the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn aside to the right or the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, so 16 years old, just 16, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor David. Isn't that a, just a, that right there, isn't that just a beautiful statement? In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor David. So, I mean, for at least, for about, you know, 16 years, you can assume then that um, even though he, he may not have been 
you know, wicked and, and obviously or, or extremely evil like Ammon or like his grandfather before Ammon, it's clear from this text that he wasn't seeking the Lord until this point. He, he, he wasn't in a, an active, thriving relationship with God. He may not have been nearly what Ammon was or Manasseh, but he, he was kind of just, I don't know, stuck, you could, you could say. Um, maybe you could even call him lukewarm. He wasn't cold and refreshing and rejuvenating. He wasn't hot, wasn't healing and, and, and effective and comforting in a spiritual sense. So while he was still a youth, in the eighth year of his reign, he began to seek the God of his ancestor, David. And there's another thing that's so important about that for us to remember and keep in mind. Um, Ammon certainly wasn't anyone that he would have wanted to, to follow or, or have the pattern of the way he went about things in his life. Manasseh, like I said there at the end, certainly was somebody to aspire to be like with his incredible repentance and reforms. The thing about this statement, what it teaches us and shows us, is that every single person, every individual, has to individually, personally seek the Lord and have a relationship with Him. That the relationship with God is always a personal, individual, one-on-one relationship. Doug Lehman uh, frequently will say this, that God doesn't have any grandchildren. He says that a lot. God doesn't have grandchildren. I like that statement. I like it. And I don't know if it's original with you, Doug, uh, but whoever came up with that statement, wherever you heard that or read that, uh, I, love, I love that statement, and I love every time you say it, because it's, it's true. We don't come into a, a relationship with Christ. Salvation is not vicarious. We, we, don't, we don't get grandfathered in to a relationship with God and into salvation. It, it doesn't matter who your daddy or who your daddy's daddy, daddy, daddy was. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what kind of spiritual life is your heritage. If, if we don't, on our own, respond to the work of the Spirit of God in drawing us to Christ, if we don't individually receive that, that awakening work that the Spirit of God does, no one else can do that for us. It's always personal. It's always individual, our walk with God. And this shows that. didn't matter that Manasseh got things right with the Lord and became godly. That didn't transfer to Ammon. It didn't transfer to Josiah. It had to be personal and in his own heart. And that's what happened. So he began to seek the God of his ancestor David when he was 16 years old. And in the 12th year, so I mean, it kind of fast forwards a lot, this this recounting. In the 12th year, so when he was 20 years old, he began to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherah poles, the carved images, and the cast images. And I want you to notice a connection here. It wasn't until he began to seek the God of his ancestor David, wasn't until that happened that he began to cleanse the land. You see those connections? He began to seek God. 
He, he began a relationship with God, and that led to the beginning of the cleansing of the land of all the idolatry. And that's how it's always going to work. It, it's, you can't skip ahead to genuine, real, or effective spiritual cleansing unless you first have a real and an effective spiritual relationship with God. So he began to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem of, of all the idolatry that was so prevalent, that had been saturating God's people. Verse 4, Then in his presence, the altars of the Baals, that was the dominant form of idolatry and paganism. It was the Achilles heel for the people of Israel, both Israel and Judah, the split kingdoms. Then in his presence, the altars of the Baals were torn down, and he chopped down the shrines that were above them. He shattered the Asherah poles, the carved images, and the cast images, crushed them to dust, and scattered them over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars. So he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. It was a lot of cleansing, wasn't it? And it may look different, and it may be more subtle today, but idolatry, church, idolatry is alive and well, and just as prevalent in our day as it was in this day, if not more, if not more. Think about all the different kinds of idolatry that is at our, at our disposal, that if we're really honest is frequently in our own life. I mean, it could be the idolatry of self, of just living for self and pursuing your agenda and your wishes and your wants, building your personal kingdom as opposed to building the kingdom of God. It could be the idolatry of laziness. It could be the idolatry of entertainment, just wanting to be entertained and pursuing entertainment in all these forms and and just being totally occupied with entertainment, 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 leisure, fun. It could be that you're a workaholic, and it's the entertainment of, or the idolatry of, of work, that work has become an idol. It could be the idolatry of family, even. See, it doesn't have to be just the really obvious bad things. That's the deceptiveness and subtlety of idolatry. The enemy is, he's too smart for, for that, just, just to use the, the obvious evil things as the form of idolatry that he tempts us with and leads us to. He's too smart for that. The enemy loves to use good things and tempt us and lead us and convince us to making good things God things. And whenever we make a good thing a God thing, we've made it an idol. Family is a good thing. Working hard, it's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with leisure and fun and sports and all those things. But if we elevate them in priority to the place where they're equal to or surpassing our, our focus and our priority of, of God and the things of God, then it's become an idol. Ministry, what I do, that can become an idol. I mean, there's just so many things that can be idolatry. We're so susceptible to it, and it is so, so subtle. And idolatry always calls for the same kind of decisive, immediate, radical action that Josiah employed here. I mean, this was radical. This was extreme. Josiah wasn't messing around. 
I mean, look at all he did that I just read. I mean, he's smashing things. He's ripping things apart. He's, he's burning things. He's scattering the, the dust from the bones of, uh, or the dust of the idols on the bones of, of those who had sacrificed to these idols. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars. I mean, this was extreme stuff. But getting rid of idolatry calls for extreme action. And it calls for serious, serious intention and activity. And that's what he did. And it wasn't limited to Judah. Verse 6 says, He did the same in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, and on their surrounding mountain shrines. So he went to all the land, all the borders of the entire land of Israel. He didn't stay just with the split kingdom of Judah. He extended beyond that. And he could because at this point, Israel was, was kingless. They didn't have anybody. They had, already, they had already been judged and there wasn't really anybody that he had to kind of get permission for. He, he had pretty much free reign. He could go and do all that, that uh, needed to be done and that's what he did. Verse 7 tells us this. He tore down the altars and he smashed smashed the Asherah poles and the carved images to powder. He chopped down all the shrines throughout the land of Israel and returned to Jerusalem. So he didn't just focus on Judah. He didn't just focus on Jerusalem. He said, no, idolatry is too prevalent. It's saturating the whole land. I've got to get rid of everything. So he did the same thing that he did in Jerusalem and Judah all through Israel. And then when he was done with this incredible reform, he returned to Jerusalem. That's what I call zeal, right? That's zeal. That's being zealous and repenting. Verse 8. In the 18th year of his reign, so by now he's 26, in order to cleanse the land and the temple, Josiah sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, along with Maseiah, the governor of the city, and the court historian, Joah, son of Joahaz, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. I want you to notice the order of that, because the order of his reforms are important. He removed corruption and idolatry from the people and from the land first. And he removed all that corruption and all that pollution, all that idolatry. He removed that from the people before he repaired the place for the people to worship. Don't, don't miss that connection. He did all these, these tearing down of the altars and smashing of the Asherah poles and all the carved images, grinding in the powder, chopping down all the shrines. He did all of that. He cleansed the people and the land of the corruption of idolatry and all this extreme sin. He did that before he started repairing the place of worship. So he purified the people for worship before he purified the place to worship. And so many times, church, we get that backwards. We focus so much on the building, on the place. Oh, look at our beautiful assembly. And we do have a beautiful assembly, don't we? Man, it's, it's incredibly beautiful, and I'm thankful for it. But if we're not careful, we'll get so focused on making sure this looks pristine when that can't be said of our own heart or our own soul, or our own mind. Where our, our spiritual condition is not pristine, but oh, the place we gather is. 
And the, the really big problem with focusing on the place is that this isn't the church. It's you. You are the church. I am the church. It's us together, the living body of Christ. And so we need to pay much, much more attention on the condition of the church, us, than we do on the building the church meets in. I mean, yes, take, take care of what we have, sure. Be good stewards of, of what the Lord has entrusted to us and given us, absolutely. But we've got to make sure that we are purifying the true church, you and me, much, much more than we ever try to purify or beautify the place that we would happen to meet in. And that's what Josiah did. And what that... What that points to and, and shows us is that renewal and revival, holiness and worship, it begins in the heart. It all begins in the heart. True renewal, true revival, true holiness, true worship, it all begins in the heart. And it's all about the heart. The spiritual condition of a person's heart is always more important than how things appear to be on the outside. Verses um, 14 through 21, I'm going to jump ahead to that. And uh, what happened is, before that, you know, we ended with verse 8 just a minute ago. And after, after Josiah um, starts the, the work of the temple, uh, after he orders these people to go and and to see to the repairs of the temple, he gives them uh, money, and he, he says, access the treasury, get, get the money that's needed uh, to, to begin reforming and repairing and cleansing the temple, get it up to where it needs to be. It's, it's in disrepair. We've allowed the temple just to, to sit and, and not be focused on. It's in shambles. We need, to, we need to rebuild and repair and cleanse the temple. I want you to go and make sure that happens. So they do that. They go and they start the work. They get the money that's needed to pay the workers, and they start the work on the temple, and they're going through, and they're cleaning things out. You know, they're, they're, they're looking through boxes, and they're cleaning up cobwebs, and then this happens. Verse 14, when they brought out the silver that had been deposited in the Lord's temple, the priest Hilkiah found the book of the law of the Lord written by the hand of Moses. That's another way of saying they found God's Word. God's Word had been so neglected, so forgotten, that it was just shoved back in some dark corner full of cobwebs in the temple that had been neglected. But they found it. They found the book of the law of the Lord written by the hand of Moses. Verse 15, Consequently, Hilkiah told the court secretary, Shaphan, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. And he gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan took the book to the king and also reported, Your servants are doing all that was placed in their hands. We're, we're doing what you told us to, King Josiah. We're, we're working on the temple. We're getting it up to standards. Verse 17, they have emptied out the silver that was found in the, in the Lord's temple and have given it to the overseers and to those doing the work. Then verse 18, then the court secretary, Shaphan, told the king, oh, and by the way, as we're doing all that, the priest Hilkiah gave me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. He read from the book of the law. He read God's word to King Josiah. And look 
at the response. Verse 19, when the king heard the words of the law, the word of God, he tore his clothes, which was an expression in this time, in this culture, of extreme anguish and grief and sorrow. It's what people did to symbolize a broken heart. So the king tore his clothes when he heard the word of God. Church, when's the last time that we were so convicted by the word of God, which we have readily at our disposal in literally thousands of translations, take your pick, we have more access to God's word now than any other people in any other time in history. When's the last time that as we read the Word of God or heard the Word of God read to us and we were so convicted and so upset over our sin that we did anything remotely close to that type of response? Have we ever? Let me go further than saying when's the last time have we ever had that kind of response? Now, I'm not trying to suggest that you stand up and tear your clothes right now, okay? I'm saying when's the last time you had that kind of, of a passionate, intense response to the Word of God as it pointed out areas of sin in your life. Verse 20, Then he commanded Hilkiah, Ahiakim, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, the court secretary Shaphan, and the king's servant, Asiah. Here's the command. Verse 21, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for those remaining in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that was found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is poured out on us because our ancestors have not kept the word of the Lord in order to do everything written in this book. He was so overcome with his sinfulness and the sinfulness of the people, he said, Please, go go inquire. Seek the Lord on, on my behalf and on our behalf. Go find a prophet of the Lord, is what he's saying. And, and see what God intends to do, because I know we have not been following his, his word, his law, his commands. Great is his wrath on us, and we need to go seek him, and we need to go ask for mercy, and we need to appeal to his grace. We, we don't have any time to lose. We've already wasted too much time. Go seek the Lord. What Josiah was wanting to happen and to see take place is what we need to see happen and for it to take place in our midst, in our lives, and in our church. And that's revival. It's revival. What Josiah was doing in all of this was the makings of a true revival, a sweeping revival. But here's the thing, and here's what Josiah understood clearly. Here's what he knew. Revival starts with repentance. Revival starts with repentance. You probably, if you haven't been part of one, you certainly know about the, the classic uh, revival meetings, you know, that people f- sometimes do, where you go a week or even two weeks and, and you go to revival, right? You go to the revival meeting. Here's the, the, I'm not trying to just 
criticize that, but I am going to point out, revival isn't something you go to. Revival is something that happens in the heart, in the mind, and throughout the life. And revival is something that should be prayed for. And there's a lot of people in our church, well, maybe not a lot, I hope there's a lot, I know for sure there's some, that are actively, day in, day out, weekly, just continually praying for revival for this body. And I I just appreciate that so much. But here's what I want us all to know and understand. It's what I just said. Revival starts with repentance. So as we're seeking revival and as we're praying for revival, we need to understand and remember that we can pray for it as long, as much as we want and as passionately as we want, but until we repent, revival will never take place. Because revival always starts with repentance. And that's what Josiah knew and understood and applied. Repentance includes seeing our sin the way God does, which is revolting. That's how he sees sin. It re, it, he sees it as revolting. And that's the way we need to see it. We, we entertain our sin too much. We flirt with sin too much. We see it as not that big of a deal when it is. It's repulsive and repugnant and revolting to God so much that he was willing to send his son that he had loved eternally to come and go to a cross and become curse for us. That's how revolting sin is to God. And that needs to be our reaction as well. And repentance is what is necessary for revival. And here's the other thing that Josiah demonstrates and shows us and proves, and that's this. Revival has to begin with an individual before it can go viral. Revival has to begin with an individual before it can go viral. You know, we, we say we want revival to sweep through our, our church and sweep through our city and sweep through our county and sweep through our state and sweep through our nation and the world. We, we say those things and we, we pray those things and that's, that's fine, that's good, that's great. I want to see that too. But we need to understand that revival has to begin with me first and has to begin with you first revival has to be an individual thing before it can ever be a corporate thing so you want to see revival take place in this church and i hope you do then it needs to start with you and revival starts with what tell me what is what does it start with repentance so you want to see revival take place start repenting do it individually And then you'll see revival follow. And then guess what? That revival, like any viral thing, will spread. Go from person to person, but it has to start at the individual level. Jump back to the text with me. Verse 29. So, after after Josiah... Here's the word of God. He's so convicted about his sin and his people's sin. He tears his clothes. He says, go seek the Lord for me. Go find a prophet. That's what happened. They went and they found a prophet, a female prophet, a prophetess. And they said, okay, what's our, what's, what are we looking at here? Where are we with God? What is, what is God thinking? What is he doing? What is he about to do? 
We've heard that we found the Word of God. We've read the Word of God. We, we see that we aren't lining up at all with His standards. We haven't been obeying Him at all. We've been rejecting His commands. We're so far out of the will of God, it's crazy. So what's that mean for us? Tell us. And so she says, well, here's the, there's some, some bad news and some good news. Which do you want first? The bad news. So she gives the bad news. She said, because of your wickedness, because you have rejected the Lord, because you have been disobeying Him so much, because you've been so sinful, you're right. God is going to judge you. Just like He judged Israel. Just like He judged you know, your brothers in Israel, the, the neighboring kingdom. God's going to judge Judah too. He's going to bring down the hammer of judgment. He is going to pour out His wrath on the wickedness. But, here's the good news. Because your king Josiah turned to the Lord and turned his heart away from all these other things, and because he brought about spiritual reform, because he has, he has done the things he's done, God is going to be merciful. And the judgment isn't going to happen yet. It won't happen in Josiah's lifetime and in his reign. In his lifetime and in his reign, God's blessing and his favor and his mercy are going to be on you, and you're going to experience that and then the judgment will come. So judgment's going to come, but he's going he's to stay his hand of judgment for a while longer. And then they came back and reported that message. And here's the response of Josiah to that. Here's what he did about it. When he heard that, um, that pronouncement, verse 29, So the king sent messengers and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. All the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the Lord's temple with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, as well as the priests and the Levites, all the people from the oldest to the youngest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. Then the king stood at his post and made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul, in order to carry out the words of the covenant written in this book. He had all those present in Jerusalem and Benjamin agree to it. He had all those present in Jerusalem and Benjamin agree to it. So all the inhabitants of Jerusalem carried out the covenant of God, the God of their ancestors. So Josiah removed everything that was detestable from all the lands belonging to the Israelites, and he required all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. Throughout his reign, they did not turn aside from following the Lord, the God of their ancestors. What a turnaround. What revival that is. That, I mean, that's revival. And, and we want to see that. I want to see that. And what we see here in this text and the pattern uh, that is so obvious and clear is this, that revival requires the Word of God, the convicting work of God, and the people of God responding in repentance. That's a recipe for revival, church. The Word of God, the convicting work of God by the Spirit, who, by the way, uses the Word of God always as His tool and instrument. And the people of God, you and me, responding in repentance. That's what we need. And there's one very intentional, very physical way of doing that. 
of showing the repentance that is needed, of having repentance, and of then experiencing revival. One very intentional thing that is, is part of that repentance, part of really passionately seeking God in a very intentional way, and that's fasting, fasting. Like I said at the beginning of our service, I announced that that's what I'm, I'm calling for and inviting you into and hoping you will participate in. I want us to do a 14-day fast starting Wednesday, two weeks. And as I said before, you can, I mean, you have total freedom on what you're going to fast from. It doesn't, it, it, it's not going to have to be, you know, the same for every single person. Uh, and I'm going to follow up tomorrow by sending an email uh, that is going to give you some specific things to consider in your fast, give you some specific uh, ideas to fast from. And I want you just to follow the Lord's leading on that. But whatever you fast from, I just ask that, that you limit the goal of your fast, or at least the main goal, to one thing. And that's to ask for true renewal and revival in this church body. Because that's what we need, church. We, we have been lulled to sleep in a lot of different ways. We have allowed ourselves to become apathetic in a lot of different ways. We're, we're missing the passion that is needed. We're missing the joy of our salvation. We're missing the joy in serving the Lord. There's a lot of repentance that needs to happen. Remember, revival starts with repentance. And fasting is always a method and a vehicle of repentance that God honors and uses all throughout history. He responds to a fasting heart that is using that fast to repent of personal sin and seeking Him in greater ways. So I hope and I pray that you will join me in this and that that we will, we will all together experience a renewed heart, a renewed mind. Because worship is really all about the heart. Don't you agree with that? We can come in and sing all the songs and pray the prayers and say amen and do all of that and, and, and go through the motions of worship. But if our heart isn't right, then it's not really worship. Maybe God has convicted you this morning as we've looked at King Josiah's example. Maybe he's convicted you of your own personal idolatry in some specific way. And maybe he's convicted you so much that you need to do something physical about it. We don't always do this, but I'm going to invite those of you who feel led to come out of your seat and actually, if you need to, to to just use this space as your own personal altar where you lay down your heart again to the Lord. 